You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Let's begin by standing this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I would like to read the first eight verses with you this morning. And then we'll pray and get into our study. The Word of God says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Yeah, you can say gross if you want, that's fine. Verse 2, And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, Him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you, are truly unle- since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning. We're so thankful for the opportunity to open the Word. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to the Word. Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, and Lord, that we would apply your Word in our lives. Lord Jesus, we know that we desperately need you. We know that we uh, cannot do anything good apart from you. And Lord, we're looking to you this morning to be the power that helps us purge sin from our own hearts and lives. Lord, that we might be a fellowship that is truly dedicated, a pure bride that is truly dedicated and waiting for her Lord and Savior to come. And Lord, we look forward to that day with all of our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, on Wednesday nights here at Calvary Chapel, we're studying through the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, and it's been a very, very fruitful study for myself as, as I'm teaching it, and, and also, I think, for the congregation that's been coming out. But in the book of Joshua, uh, there, there's a, a particular, uh, there, there, there's a, a battle that takes place in the city of Jericho. Um, where they were, the Israelites were commanded by God to destroy everything. And, and that city was to be dedicated completely to God. And then they had a further instruction that anything that was precious metal within that city, it was supposed to be delivered to God or dedicated to God and to the tabernacle specifically as a gift to God. However, we read there in Joshua that there was a man named Achan who in the battle of Jericho, while he was plundering the city there, he decided, he allowed the greed to settle into his heart, and he took a wedge of gold for himself, as well as several shekels of silver. And he took those items and he hid them in his tent, in his tent, sorry, not his tent, uh, his tent, thinking, okay, in my tent, here hidden away, these precious, this wedge of gold and this silver, no one's going to know. 
No one's going to know what I've done. It's my own secret sin. It's not going to affect anybody else. And he hid that away in his tent. Well, little known to Achan, that act of sin, that defiant, rebellious heart against the command of God ended up affecting a lot of other people. You see, in the very next battle that Israel joined in, the battle of Ai, there were 36 men who were killed in that battle, and Israel lost the battle. They ended up fleeing before the men of the city of Ai. And not only did those 36 men lose their lives, but 36 families lost a father or a son. And not only that... Later, it became clear that the battle of Ai was the catalyst which mobilized all the other nations in the land of Canaan to come against Israel. You see, before this, they had been stationary. They had been, uh, the, the fear and the dread of the God of Israel and the people of Israel was over them. But after the battle of Ai, where they lost, we noticed that all of a sudden they realized, hey, these guys can be beat. They have weakness. And so they mobilized and began to attack the Israelites in a united front. Well, God ended up using that for good in the end. But all of that came as a result of one man's secret sin. One man who said, I'm going to take this, I'm going to do this, and nobody else is going to know, no one else is going to be affected by it. Interesting, isn't it, how one man's sin can have such far-reaching effect and cause such widespread damage the lesson that we study today, and, and, and this is the case that we're studying in our passage today, is how one man's sin is going to affect, and, 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 and there's going to be a destructiveness and a far-reaching effect of this one man's sin. You see, Paul is teaching us that, that Christians are to put away sin from their midst, and they're to become the people of God that we already are by God's grace. You see, Paul teaches something that is never a part. What he's going to teach us this morning is never supposed to become a legalistic rule for us. But what we're to do is we're to realize, okay, we are God's people. And we're to allow God's grace to lead us into becoming those people by purging out the sin that is in our midst. So that was the theme of, of our message this morning. Our first point, if you're following along in the outline, is that we're to judge the sin that is among you. Verses 1 through 5. Pick it up with me there in verse 1. Paul, again, I want to read it to you again. You can read it in your Bible. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Let's pause here for a moment. This is problem number one. This is problem number one in our message today, the sexual immorality in the church. Now, you know from last week that we paused right there after that first part of first one. I felt like the Lord had a prophetic word for our congregation and several needed to just, you know, just kind of debunk the, 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 you know, the, the dirtiness that society and culture has pegged to the sexual uh, uh, nature and and we looked at the genesis of sex and 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 we looked at the, the the perversion of sex by Satan in our world and then we looked at how we redeem that and bring that back to a Christian context. But today, I want to just study through this passage verse by verse, and and we start off by looking at Paul's tone. Paul's tone here in verse one it's it's one of horror. It's, it's a tone of horror at the fact of what is actually taking place here in the church. 
the sexual immorality that's being practiced by this believer. He says it is such that is not even named among the Gentiles, which here refers to a non-believing community. Now the Greek word that is used there in verse 1 for sexual immorality is pornea. Pornea. And obviously, from hearing that word, you, you can realize, hey, that's where we derive our uh, English word for pornography from. Uh, but that it really is more general than just pornography. Pornea refers to all sexual activity that is outside of the marriage relationship of the husband and wife. Now, we know from studying the history of ancient Greco-Roman culture that Corinth was a city that was steeped in immoral behavior, something that was really actually quite common throughout most of the Roman Empire in those times. But in fact, we have a quote from one legal argument of the times. It's titled, Against Naira. And there's a man named Demosthenes, a lawyer who is arguing in the case, and he states this. He says, Mistresses, we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives bear us legitimate children. Wow. Women, can I get an amen that you're not living in those days? <laughs> what a bad life for the ladies in those days. It was, it was a wild culture. Mistresses, concubines, and then wives for legitimate children. It seems that many believers within the Corinthian church had brought these sort of morals and standards that they had before their faith, and they had brought that and carried it over into their newfound faith in Christ Jesus. And so they were in need of guidance and correction. However, Paul says that this case is actually extreme. He says this isn't even named among the Gentiles, the non-believing community. This incest that was going on. And it's surprising because this was outlawed in, first of all, the Jewish Torah. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verses 7 through 8, the verses are on the screen. It says, The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She's your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. Thereby including stepmothers in that, uh, that, that rule, that principle of morality that God is laying out way back in the book of Leviticus. Now, we know that Corinth wasn't a Jewish city. Although there was a significant population of Jews there, they, they themselves were not under the Torah per se. But that doesn't matter because we find in other writings that Roman law also outlawed the practice of incest. Or, in other words, even this pagan culture, they knew that this was wrong and it had been outlawed. It had actually been written in their law. So, this is why Paul says this is something that is not even named among the non-believers. And in this case, there's a man in the church actively sleeping with his stepmother. All of that is concluded after you study the wording that Paul uses in these verses. It was definitely his stepmother, and it was definitely an ongoing sexual relationship. But that's not the only problem, Paul says. According to what he says in verse 2, look at what he says. He says, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. So the second problem is pride. The first problem was this sexual immorality that was happening. But secondly, there was this pride 
There was this pride in, in, in their allowance of this, in their tolerance. Now, he uses the same term there that he's already used in chapter 4 and in chapter 3 for their inflated egos, this word puffed up. He's talking about their arrogance, arrogance about their spiritual teachers and their spiritual gifts. You see, these Corinthian believers, they were living in the spirit of the wisdom of the world. They were living in the spirit of their flesh, and they were proud of themselves in their spiritual lives. But this arrogance had caused them to be blind. They became blind to the sin that was happening in the midst of them. Isn't that so often how it is? Pride creeps in through the back door, and it causes us to become blind to our sins and to the sins that are around us. You know, uh, we are teaching a character class here at the church on Tuesday nights, and that's one of the things that we've been studying, is that if you don't have godly character, or if you're not pursuing godly character yourself, you know what happens? You become blind to what godly character really is. You can't see it in other people because you don't have it yourself. And that's exactly what was happening in the church. Their arrogance had caused them to be blind to what was supposed to be godly character. This brother that was sinning and living this sinning lifestyle, he needed the church to lovingly discipline him, not to affirm him. Paul says they needed to put him out of the church because of what he was practicing. Now note, I want, I want you to note this. Paul isn't saying that he should be put out because of something he was tempted to do. All of us are tempted to do many things, and many of us are struggling with sin. We, we all know that struggle. We know that battle when a temptation is presented, and we have the opportunity to unite our mind or our will to that temptation, and in that moment, it gives birth to sin. But that's the battle, isn't it? Many of us are in that place, and we can resist temptation. We can, we can say, you know, I know where this is leading, and I'm not going to do it. And we fight, we resist the devil, we flee from temptation, and we run to the Lord. That's the battle of Christianity, isn't it? The battle between the flesh and the spirit. That's what all of us are to be involved in. Paul isn't saying we should put those kind of people out of the church. Man, I'd, I wouldn't be here on Sunday if that was, if that was the case. Neither would you. We, if, you're a struggle, if you're one of those Christians not struggling in sin, but hey, you're, you're, you're resisting and you're, you're in that camp of, of fighting against it, and you know, occasionally we're going to fall because of the weakness of our flesh. We, we realize that. But listen, this man was deliberately sinning. He was choosing to continue in a sinful lifestyle. Now, if these Corinthians had been able to see themselves through the eyes of Jesus Christ, they would have mourned over what was happening instead of tolerating it. Paul makes that point. He says, look, instead of being proud, you need to be mourning over sin. Jesus was the one who taught his followers to mourn over the presence of sin. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, he said this. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about a believer's heart towards sin. He's talking about the person who professes to follow Jesus Christ with their mouth. Their attitude in their heart towards sin should be one of mourning. It should be one of 
wow, I recognize and realize that sin is serious. It is destructive. There is no such thing as a small sin. All sin has effects that are far greater reaching than I even know. And because of that, I'm going to mourn the presence of sin in my life. Now, in verses 3 through 5, we have Paul's solution in what he tells the Corinthian church they needed to do. He starts off in verse, 30, er, in verse 3. He says, For I indeed... Paul's making a point here that his position is, is completely the opposite of the Corinthian church. He says, I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. Paul is not afraid to step in and to pass a judgment, he says, over this believer's actions. Paul, through observing what has happened because of the, uh, of the, of the story or the, uh, the, the, the situation that has been reported to him, he's able to assess it correctly. He uses his godly discernment to say, that is wrong. Christians, we need to realize today that you and I have been given a place for making a correct judgment, for using our God-given discernment and deciding if something is good or if it's evil. Now, there's a lot of pressure in culture today that says, hey, no, you, you can't judge others. You're not, you're not to do that. And everybody is always careful to tiptoe around and say, well, I don't want to judge. I don't want to judge. But listen, the Bible says we're to exercise good judgment when it comes to things like good and evil. We're to recognize if something is sin, we're to call it sin. If something is evil and tearing down and destroying, we're to call it so. And that's just fine with Jesus. Jesus himself commanded his disciples to judge with righteous judgment. Now, there's a difference between critical judgment and taking the place of God and passing a condemning type of a judgment on somebody's life. That we're never to do. That's Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus says, judge not, lest you yourself be judged. But then very, in, in verse 5, he says, but, hey, take the plank out of your own eye before you go to your brother and say, remove the speck from his eye. What is all that dealing with? Hey, you have to make some judgments you got to judge the sin in your own life first before you step out to come alongside of a brother and identify something that's wrong in his life. Jesus makes that very clear. So Paul here is saying, hey, we need to make that judgment just as he is. Now, look at verse uh, 3 again, and, and I want to ask the question, you know, is, what does Paul mean that he's present in spirit, even though he's absent in body? Is he saying something weird here about you know, being able to be present in two places at once? Is he saying that, you know, he can actually follow what's going on through like a weird mind trick or, you know, something like that? No. What he's simply stating here is that just as the Corinthian believers were part of the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, that he, Paul, is also united with them and therefore he's present in the Spirit. In the kingdom of heaven... Believers, we have received the Spirit of God, and we become one with the Lord Jesus, the Bible teaches us, and we become the temple of God. Our body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit, and collectively, we are God's temple. We are God's church. So when Paul says he's absent in body, but present in spirit, he's talking about that common bond that we all share in the Holy Spirit. 
as they read this letter, this letter would have been read to the church when they were gathered together there in Corinth. He's saying, hey, when you read this letter out loud in your church, you're to receive these written words as though Paul himself is present with the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he, go, he goes on. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pause here for a minute. I want to point out that he is mentioning three elements that are going to be present as they carry out church discipline in this case. First of all, he says that the church itself is to gather. Secondly, he talks about the leadership of Paul being present through the power of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Listen, church, when we gather together, Jesus Christ is in our midst. The book of Revelation tells us that, that Jesus Christ is all about his church. And as we gather, hey, we don't just gather and, you know, kind of, you know, sleepily go through the motions of singing worship to the king that's walking among us. We need to recognize and realize, hey, the power and presence of Jesus Christ is among us. His Holy Spirit fills us and unites us. And this morning as we share the feast of the Lord's Supper, we're all, in a sense, becoming one through the sharing of this meal, the bread that represents Jesus Christ, and that cup as it enters each one of our bodies, and that piece of bread being united at one point, now it's in you, now it's in me. Hey, think about that. There's a communion that takes place on a spiritual level. And it's special. So the exercising of church discipline is not to come just from Paul. It's to come from the whole community. Because they, as a community, were being affected by the sin that's in their midst. It's also to come through the dynamic power and presence of the Spirit of God, who confirms their actions with His presence. Verse 5, here's... Paul's solution, he says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, this verse here has been a source of concern for many believers. And it has also been a difficult passage to understand for preachers. Paul is a little bit ambiguous in his meaning here. But let's start with what we know that Paul does not mean here. When Paul says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, he is not talking about this guy being kicked out so that he could die. He in no way means that Satan is going to take this man's life or, or even that God is going to take this man's life. You know, during the, the Spanish Inquisition, the Catholic Church's inquisitors used this verse as justification for torture and even killing people as they delivered them over to the destruction of their flesh. But that is not what Paul means when he says this. What does he mean? Well, let's break this down. He starts off, he says, deliver such a one to Satan. Now this means simply that the man has to be put out of the church into the realm in which Satan rules, which is the world. He's to be put out of the covering, the spiritual protection, if you will, and the social uh, comfort of the church and put into the realm where Satan rules, which is the world. 
That's how the Bible teaches us that, that we're to view the world. There's the church and there's Satan. There's the world. There's, there's not one or the other. You're either with Jesus or you're not. Matthew chapter 12 verse 30 says, If you are not with me, or if you're not for me, then you are against me. Okay, we have to realize that. So delivering such a one to Satan, Paul means, hey, put him out in the realm of Satan. Secondly, for the destruction of the flesh, he says. Now this means that as the man was put out of the spiritual and social blessings of the church, that he would face the consequences of his choices. Okay, So when, when he says, deliver such a one to Satan, that's the disciplinary action of the church. When he says, for the destruction of the flesh, that's the consequences of this man's sin. The hope of Paul is that by wallowing in the results of sinful choices, this man's desire to keep on sinning would be destroyed. And that's kind of along the lines of what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. He says, sin, that it might become exceedingly sinful. You know, when we are sinning, there's a period of time that there is pleasure. There, there is a pleasure that comes from sin, and it is fleeting. But when that fleeting pleasure is gone, do you know what begins to happen? The, the, the Holy Spirit begins to convict. The conscience begins to accuse. And not only that, but we begin to realize the consequences of our sin. There are often physical consequences of our sin, especially when we talk about sexual immorality. And, and as we wallow in those consequences, we realize, man, my desire for sin is beginning to diminish because I'm seeing what it's doing to me. It's destroying my own soul. It's destroying my life. It's destroying my relationships. And it's not good and that's the hope of Paul here, that the destruction of this man's flesh is that he would just, his desire to keep on sinning would just stop. And then, then he goes on to say that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now this is the goal of church discipline. This is the goal of church discipline right here, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul's motive for putting this man out of the church is not so that he can do something mean to the guy. It's not so that he can have his sort of weird Christian revenge on somebody. Now, we know that excommunication gets abused in some church circles, and that's unfortunate. But Paul makes it very clear that that was not his intention. His motive in doing this was always so that this man would come to his senses, repent from his sin, and turn back to the Lord to be saved. Notice, Paul doesn't just write this man off. He truly hopes that he will be restored. Now, I want to take a minute here to talk about what we can learn about church discipline from this passage. It's important. First of all, we see that church discipline is not the concern of just a few in leadership. In this case, the man's sin is something that was known by all, and it affected the whole church. And therefore, Paul says that the action taken was to be taken in the presence of all, not just by a few of the leaders. So that's my first point about church discipline, is that, hey, it's not just me and the board of elders that need to be involved in church discipline cases. There is times when the entire church is to be involved. Now, that's in contrast to a case where a person's sin may not be known by everyone in a church. You know, often that's the case in a church of this size. 
and, and with two services going on, hey, we're not always going to uh, share uh, every, you know, a, a case like this with everybody because they, they don't need to be exposed to everyone in the church. It's not something that everybody in the church knew about. But there will be perhaps a time, I, I pray that there's not, but there will be perhaps a time when something that's so heinous or so extreme takes place that we do need to uh, talk about that to the whole church. And, and, and God forbid that it's not a pastor on staff or even myself that would, would be the source of that. But if that were the case, I trust our godly leadership team, the board of elders, that they would come and they would, they would do the right thing with you guys in letting you know and, and putting that person out of their, uh, at least their position and possibly the church until there was repentance in that, that, man, in that man's life, in that person's life. Now, that's the first thing, is that the whole church is involved in this, okay? It's not just, just a few in leadership. Secondly, I want to make the point that we see here the ultimate goal for church discipline is always restoration of a person's soul. So important, guys. So important that we get this, that this doesn't, doesn't turn into something ugly. Now, this can only happen in a community of believers who knows what it means to love the Lord, and what it means to love his people. We have to understand what it means to love Jesus with all our hearts and to love his people. We have to be able to see each other as brothers and sisters that Christ died for and to know the, he- the, the weight of that. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it is a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. I like that. I appreciate that so much. You know, we don't need pious policemen <laughs> policing the ranks and taking it upon themselves to uh, shun people or kick people out of the church. You know, when I pastored in Costa Rica, unfortunately, uh, we had a case where that happened, where uh, a young man came into our church for the first time and he had a nose ring and an eyebrow ring and several tattoos and was obviously uh, either a new believer or just, you know, just, just curious about the things of the Lord and came to our church and he was stopped at the door by someone in our church who took it upon themselves to let him know that he was not welcome in our midst with those things in his nose and his eyebrow and he needed to put a shirt on to cover his tattoos well, that young man left our church, obviously, and didn't come back for some time. When I heard about it, I went to him, and I told him, hey, man, tattoos, I got them, okay? Uh, earrings, now I don't have any of those, but uh, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you just the way you are. You need to come back. You need to come to the Lord. He, he's not, he's not going to judge you for your appearance. What he's interested in is your heart, the condition of your heart. And as we began to talk to him, he actually became a believer in the Lord, uh, came to church there, and, and it's a really cool story. That guy's serving the Lord today. He's on fire for Jesus. Just loves the Lord. He's a great BMX bike rider and uh, has, has just been able to share his testimony with so many young people. It's amazing uh, 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 and a wonderful story. But, but it doesn't always happen like that, does it? But we need to, we need to understand that, hey, we're, we're not out to be pious policemen. We're out to be grieving brothers and sisters that realize the destructiveness of sin and the far-reaching effects of sin. And so because of that, because of our true, genuine love, we come alongside of somebody and begin to talk and, and to, to uh, um, share with them. 
Thirdly, about church discipline, we need to understand that in this case, the man's sin was affecting the entire community of believers. It was an extreme case, which he was practicing sin not even named among non-believers. Now, those two things, guys, coupled together with the fact that he's unrepentant, they show us that excommunicating someone or disfellowshipping someone from church is probably reserved for those kinds of extreme cases. It's not something that we want to get happy about doing and, you know, start pulling the trigger on people before we, di- we would <laughs> excommunicate ourselves uh, from in the process. However, I want to point this out. At the same time, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't walk through the steps of Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, when someone sins against another believer in the church. Jesus tells us if somebody sins against you, you need to go to that brother alone, and you need to talk to them and let them know what they've done. Okay, that's the first step. Now, if that brother refuses to hear, well, then you go and you bring a witness with you, a a, a godly person in that church, maybe somebody in your life connected to the situation, and they can be a witness, and you sit down and you, again, attempt to make the situation known to that sinning brother or sinning sister. You let them know, hey, this is what you did, this is how it made me feel, and this is what I'm dealing with. And hopefully your heart in doing that is to win them back, is to have them go, oh, wow, I I didn't realize that, and I want to make things right. Our heart is always to restore. But then thirdly, Jesus says, if if, if they still refuse to listen, after you've sat down with a, 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 first alone, then brought a godly witness into that situation, then you're to go to the church leadership and you're to talk about it with them, and they will, they will be in prayer, they'll be led by the Spirit, and they're going to decide, okay, here's what we need to do. Now, the fourth thing I want to say about uh, church discipline, and really this is one of the, the greatest problems that we face with church discipline in the United States, is this, is that a believer who's confronted about sin in a church can so easily just leave that church and go down the street to the next one, and they act as if nothing ever happened And it's so sad. Or perhaps in a reverse case, you also see this, where uh, the leadership of a church is confronted about sin, and they actually refuse to repent. And then the people have no choice but to leave that church. So this is a sad commentary on the state of Christianity today, but uh, both on individuals themselves within the church, and and, and some some of those leadership that get so arrogant that they're blind to their own uh, uh, sins, but also of churches who willingly welcome any person, even if they've been disfellowshipped from another church without even attempting to reconcile the issue. It's a problem. As we finish up our message today, Paul does so with just a brilliant analogy to help prove the point that he's making. There in verse 6, he says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The leaven that Paul speaks of here, it's not yeast. Uh, It's kind of the the same principle as yeast, but yeast was too expensive and hard to come by in those times. So what he's talking about, leaven, is it it was a small piece of last week's dough that had been uh, torn off of the lump just before it was baked. And that bit of dough was then added into the next lump of dough, that we, the, the, the new lump, and that would fully ferment that new batch, which would cause the bread to have a lightness to it. If you, if you think of sourdough bread, that's basically the concept here. 
But Paul is saying that the tolerance of sin, even a little bit, it's affecting the whole church. Like that little bit of leaven is added to the new lump. In verse 7 he says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So in commanding them to purge out the old leaven, Paul is speaking about Specifically referring to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which the Jewish people would keep along with the Passover feast. And in that feast, the Jews would purge their entire home. During Passover week, they would purge their entire home of leaven. Anything that was bread stuff had to be removed from the home. And it was symbolic for removing any sinful influence, any contaminating influence in their lives. Because Paul says... That Jesus Christ died for us, our Passover lamb. So Paul reminds them that they're to become what they already are. You see, Jesus Christ's death, the lamb of God, the sacrifice for sin, he was the one that made them a new lump in the first place. He's the one that made them new creations. And so they were to live in light of that fact. And they were to look and to purge out the leaven in in their lives, the the influence and the power of sin from their lives. Verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, Jesus Christ has already paid for our sin, Paul is saying. Therefore, we're not to live in sin, we're not to tolerate sin which caused our Lord Jesus Christ to suffer the wrath of God for you and for me. The wrath of God being poured out on Jesus Christ for our sins should be a motivator for us to purge out the influence of sin from our lives and from our midst. He died so that you could be free from its power, so that you could be free from its sway, and to go on living in sin to decide Well, I know that Jesus did that, but I don't really care. I'm going to continue to live the way I am without changing, without even being open to the Spirit's work in my life. Hey, you are offending God on a very serious level, in a very serious way. What about us here today? What are we in need of today? What kind of sinful influences do we need to purge from our hearts and our minds? What in your life is a sinful influence that's having an impact in a negative way? Perhaps you have a negative attitude. Perhaps you have a negative habit. Or you're you're indulging in your flesh in a certain area. And you justify it. You say, well, I deserve this because of such and such a reason. Hey, listen, we need to realize that Christ died to free us from all of those things. That he took the wrath of God so that God's wrath would pass over us. So that we might be free from its power. Your godly character this morning depends on you acting on the word of scripture that you've heard. As we celebrate our equivalent of the Feast of Unleavened Bread this morning, and, 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 and the, which is the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to ask you guys to take the time to examine your own hearts and your own lives. You see, we need to heed the exhortation of the Apostle Paul. 
We need to keep the feast with pure hearts. We need to keep the feast in a way that we're saying to Jesus, hey, I'm your pure bride. I care about my relationship with you. I care about what you did for me. This bread that I hold and this cup in my hand, they symbolize your body and your precious blood, which you gave for me. We need to see if there's any wickedness or malice in our own hearts this morning. And we need to realize that if there is, it's affecting other people. We may not realize it, but it is affecting other people. And the only way to root it out is to confess it. We need to confess it to the Lord. We need to name it. We need to say the same thing about it that God does. Hey, it's not good. It's destructive, Lord. And, and Lord, I'm giving this to you today. I'm going to turn from this and I'm turning to you. That's what repentance is. It's an understanding of the seriousness of sin in your life. And it's an understanding that it's really doing more than you really think it is. And you confess it to the Lord. You name it and you turn from it. You turn to him. So as we eat the bread this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team to come on out. But as we eat the bread... And as we drink the cup, may it remind us of what our sin cost, the living Son of God. And as we, as we do that, as we meditate on it, that we would remember that God's wrath has passed over our lives because Jesus Christ took it upon himself. Let's pray.